This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks to the first two speakers and now our third speaker on the panel is Dr. Yvonne Bonnie Maldonado, who is professor of the Departments of Pediatrics and Health Research and Policy, Chief of Division of Infectious Diseases, and Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Development and Diversity at Stanford University School of Medicine, down the road from here. And uh, Dr. Maldonado's research interest are the epidemiology and prevention of viral vaccine-preventable diseases, such as measles, polio, rotavirus, and she is internationally uh, known and published in Zimbabwe, in Mexico, and in the United States, a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Infectious Disease Society of America, and on and on and on and on. And we are privileged to have you join us for this discussion of Zika. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you, Lisa. Sorry, I knew you were so busy. I didn't have a Thank you, everybody, and um, hopefully I'll be able to keep you awake um, after lunch. Um, thank you for inviting me. We are all colleagues, even though we're right down the street. We're not. We're all trying to get along, so I always am happy to be at UCSF and represent my colleagues here because we're all in this together, especially for a disease like this that, as you've heard already, we don't know much about, and um, we uh, need to work together to figure out what to do. So um, I just ha I have no disclosures for this. I am on an advisory board, uh, data safety monitoring board for a vaccine trial uh, by Pfizer. I'm also, uh, by the way, on the Red Book Committee for the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm the vice chair of that committee. I'm also the AAP representative on the Zika CDC um, guidelines. So I can maybe explain a little bit more about what they mean by consider, which means they don't know. So, uh, so yeah, they don't know, but they also don't want to discourage people from not doing anything. So they just say, well, if we say MRI, then they won't do anything. So maybe we'll just say, if you want to, go ahead and do it. But don't let that stop you from doing all the other stuff. So I think they're really worried about people. In fact, about 25% of uh, practices aren't doing any of the evaluations that we're recommending because they don't, we don't know why, but they're just not doing them. So anyway, you saw this wonderful slide. Um, actually, it's, tr it's not true that, um, that other viral diseases transmitted by mosquitoes haven't, have caused this. We have seen, for example, chikungunya, dengue, and others have actually caused congenital malformations of the brain. So they're not very common, and that's what's very striking about Zika is that it does cause a very substantial proportion at this time. Now remember, we're looking at a very early onset of a virus that came into a population that was completely susceptible with lots of crowding, et cetera. And so we don't really know if this is going to continue to be a pattern or if this is really just hitting all of the susceptible populations all at one time, and maybe we'll see it slow down. So right now we're in a slow period all around the world, uh, especially in areas, tropical areas where right now um, they are are not yet in the rainy season. They're going to start coming back into the rainy season. I was just in the Yucatan Peninsula and also in Puerto Rico talking about cases, and it's been very quiet right now, but we're heading into the rainy season. So we don't know whether this, because this is the first year we really are 
looking at this and we won't know what's going to happen. You already saw most of these case counties are a little bit more up to date, but only a week's more. I think the important thing here to remember is you need to know the local transmission, even if you don't have any, uh, but also be aware of transmission because there are a lot of people who travel. About 40 million people a year go to places where there might be Zika transmission or where there's definitely mosquitoes. So you will actually start seeing people who uh, have traveled to areas and may be concerned. So these are the numbers that you've already seen. It's really important to note here that there are a lot of cases in the Caribbean. These are about over almost 40,000 cases now locally acquired. It's really hard to look at sexual transmission in an area where there's so much local transmission. So we really don't know the impact there. Uh, when, you, when you look at um, aggregate cases in pregnant women, as you heard, is about four, almost 1,400 in the U.S. and the District of Columbia, about 3,000 in Puerto Rico. And they keep their own separate data, so their, data, their numbers vary depending on who you ask in Puerto Rico, but they're certainly seeing a lot of cases there. Now, in the U.S. and the District of Columbia, we have about 1,000 completed pregnancies with 38 live-borns with birth defects and five pregnancy losses that we know with birth defects. Um, not all of these have been confirmed to be Zika, though, around the losses. And in the U.S. territories, um, the, the Puerto Rican data is not available online, but when I was talking to the health department there, they said they'd had uh, about, um, uh, about 50 pregnancy losses, but they didn't actually look for Zika in all of them, so we don't know that those are related to Zika, and about five children who were born with birth defects. The virus, again, as you heard about, is, uh, was identified in 1947, but what's really striking is that it really just took off when it came to Brazil. It's been circulating for many, many years in, um, in primarily in Central Africa, and then in the, in the early 2000s, it started migrating uh, into Asia and Southeast Asia, primarily because of infected individuals coming into countries and then being uh, infecting local mosquitoes, so there, there is that cycle there. We do have that opportunity, unfortunately, here in in the southern part of the U.S., um, but not as high as the risk, say, in Brazil or other places of the world because we have better screening and air conditioning. It is a virus that's uh, related to um, a yellow fever and dengue, which actually is endemic now in, Car in the Caribbean and parts of uh, northern uh, Latin America, and it's a flavivirus. Um, these viruses are arboviruses, which stands for arthropod-borne viruses or mosquito-borne viruses. They're usually transmitted primarily by the bite of an infected uh, arthropod. It's the Aedes species in this situation, Aedes aegypti and, and Aedes albopictus is the secondary vector. Um, uh, uh, but uh, uh, ticks, obviously, no, no transmission for Zika, but for the other arbos it can be. And there can be a cycle primarily of just mosquito to human to mosquito. Um, but as you know, we also have uh, transmission and other routes, as we'll talk about. So these are the two culprits here. This is Aedes aegypti up here. This is the most common vector uh, for um, Zika. This is Aedes albopictus, which also can transmit. Uh, we don't have a lot of these uh, virus, uh, these uh, mosquitoes in the U.S., but they can be imported in uh, cargo containers, et cetera, that have small bits of water where larvae can grow. Uh, they can tra also transmit dengue and chikungunya viruses, which are also prevalent now. 
now in the Caribbean as well. And these are nervous feeders, that is, as opposed to anopheline mosquitoes, which transmit malaria and only bite one person at a time and then move off. Aedes are very nervous biters. They'll bite and feed for a little bit, and then they'll jump around. So they can feed up, on five, up to five to ten people a day, so the risk of transmission from multiple people is much higher. Um, as you heard before, there are other modes of transmission, sexual, uh, mother to fetus, uh, and possibly breast milk, uh, blood transfusion, lab exposure, and organ transplant also are theoretical. The, uh, the question around sexual transmission is not clear yet because, again, in the areas where there's most Zika, you, it's hard to detect the difference between sexual transmission and um, locally acquired from mosquitoes. In the U.S., we have seen cases um, as you know. And this is just a schematic showing you that we have an infected person here. They can transmit to an inf a mosquito, and then the mosquito can live in households. And by the way, these mosquitoes love biting humans as opposed to the anophilines, which transmit malaria, which prefer to bite, bite, bite large animals. Not that we're not large, but big animals, like cows and horses and that kind of thing. They don't like biting, uh, 80s love biting humans, and so they love to live inside houses, and they can live in up to a teaspoon of water. So it doesn't take a lot of liquid for them to grow. And then you can see the cycle here. But again, we talked about uh, mother-to-child transmission, sexual transmission, and other blood-borne uh, methods of transmission. Um, where is Zika now? It's reported in 70 countries now, and here's a list. Just looking at the Western Hemisphere, you can see the Western Hemisphere is quite impacted. You notice that Chile doesn't seem to have any cases, and it may be that with the Andes there, uh, they may not have uh, as many cases or any cases that have been reported to date. Now, what about in the U.S.? Uh, the Zika has been reported in, the, in 49 states in the District of Columbia. The one state that has not reported Zika cases is Alaska. Um, there has been local transmission in Florida and very, in the very, very southern tip of Texas as well. And we've seen it in, the Amer in American Samoa, Puerto Rico, as I mentioned, which is really accounts for most of the transmission so far in the U.S. territories and of U.S. Virgin Islands as well. Um, we talked about the symptoms already. I think what's really important to point out here from the epidemiologic perspective is that 80% of people are not symptomatic, even when you look going forward, you do not see evidence of symptoms, and so you can have silent transmission and circulation of this virus and not know uh, what's going on. So this is what worries us in particular around uh, pregnancy. Uh, we talked about congenital disease, and this is just a schematic showing uh, that you really do have a dropout of neuro neuronal cells, um, and this really is a ver very much in parallel to rubella, which really does kill these cells. And if you take set these cells in tissue culture and you grow them, um, you, they will just die. They completely just get devastated. And uh, we know that the Zika receptor, and that data from the UCSF actually was the first report, and then some from Hopkins later, demonstrated that the Zika receptor exists in all of, uh, in many of the neural progenitor cells, that is the cells that become the brain later on, but also all over the placenta, both on the maternal side and the fetal side. So there's lots of opportunities for this virus to infect. Uh, CDC and other labs confirm Zika in fetal tissues, and these are pictures showing evidence of Zika virus here um, in fetal products of, of fetal demise, and also has been identified in amniotic fluid, placenta, the brain, and other products of conception. 
You heard a little bit about um, the evidence of causality, but there is very, very rigorous data now coming from CDC and others looking at many, not only just the evidence of teratogenicity, but also causality for microcephaly. And both of those Shepherd's criteria and the Bradford Hill criteria, which are the classic epidemiologic criteria to establish causality have been met by, uh, it, with, it was in very short period of time, people have really looked at this carefully. And this is a paper summarizing that. Um, I would could encourage people who are interested to look at the cdc.gov forward slash Zika website, and you can find anything you need to know, including resources, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But this study also, as you heard earlier, emphasizes the fact that even children, so we don't think that Zika is a latent virus. That means we don't think it incorporates into the human genome and stays forever. But we do think that it can hide. And we don't, in, and eventually, we don't, but we don't know how long it can hide in the body. Um, we do know that it'll, it can stay in semen, for example, for several months. It can be in the cervical secretions of pregnant women for many, many uh, weeks. And um, we don't know how long that can be. So we do think at some point the virus does get killed. We also think that um, immunity could be lifelong if we think about it from the standpoint of other uh, flaviviruses. But the important thing is that when a child looks asymptomatic at birth, that doesn't mean they're not infected and that that infection may not set up some uh, long-term uh, complications. Oh, I'm going the wrong way, sorry. So this is a study that is really not based on actual um, uh, transmission data in patients. This is really looking at an aggregate of what's happened so far, primarily in Bahia, Brazil, which is where the original outbreak uh, was thought to have started in the Western Hemisphere, the big one. Um, and um, it is estimated that between 1 and 13 percent of um, of uh, of Zika infections can lead to microcephaly. And it's thought also from this model that it's most likely to occur in the first trimester, but we don't know that for sure. And you heard about Zika in pregnancy. One of the important things to note is that it's not worse in women who are pregnant. We don't think that they're at higher risk for bad symptoms or for prolonged uh, um, well, maybe prolonged transmission, because as we know, we just found out that there can be a prolonged shedding in the cervical and vaginal tract. So there may be increased shedding of the, vaccine, of the virus. And transmission through breast milk has not been documented, but it has been found in samples of breast milk. And we know about the clinical manifestations around uh, neurologic disease, so severe microcephaly, um, and also, I would like to point out that some of the uh, peripheral findings at this point appear to be related to actual direct infection of the spinal cord or effect of the spinal cord, not just the central nervous system. So you're not only having CNS disease, but also peripheral. And in that case, that may be account for some of the contractures that we're seeing, but we don't know that for sure yet. There are postnatal infections in children, and it's important to point out that in these postnatal infections, the children actually just get symptoms that are similar to those in adults and older children and appears to be mild and does not seem to be associated with any of the uh, severe uh, outcomes that we see in children whose mothers uh, who had transmission from mother to child. Um, and the question is, um, at what point uh, after birth do you have this uh, relatively mild course compared to the severe one? So, for example, if you're exposed during breastfeeding only or if you're exposed 
um, in during mother de, during the labor and delivery process, will that will that always lead to just symptom, uh, mild infection or no infection? And we don't know that either. So who should be tested? I think you heard all of the guidelines already. Patients obviously with symptoms who have been in areas where uh, uh, where we know that Zika transmission is occurring, or who have been linked epidemiologically to a case. Um, or other people who are asymptomatic who've traveled to these areas who, or who have a, a sexual partner at risk. Um, it is nationally notifiable, as you heard, as well as congenital infections. And infants should be tested for Zika if they have microcephaly or intracranial calcifications and were born to women who traveled to or resided in areas with Zika transmission while pregnant or born to mothers with positive or inconclusive testing, especially with the IgM test, for Zika infection. Communicating test results, I think you already heard about this. It's really important to get the data to the local or state uh, health department because there are a number of national and international registries because we're trying to figure out how to aggregate these and figure out what the natural history of the disease would be. Um, there is no specific treatment, and you're going to get the usual uh, kind of advice around getting plenty of rest and drinking fluids to prevent dehydration, et cetera, but really nothing, um, nothing specific about this disease. There are vaccines that are in the process of being development, and the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response um, for the uh, federal government, as well as another organization called BARDA, which also develops uh, uh, interventions for the Department of Defense, are working on a number of vaccines, um, and there are quite a few, um, and they are looking at potential general use and commercial distribution by 2020, which I think is very optimistic. But they are starting to look at doing some early studies, and at least in primates of candidate Zika vaccine, vaccines appear to be uh, pretty effective in preventing uh, not only disease, but um, even uh, spread of virus in blood and other, other body fluids. And so here's a landscape of uh, Zika vaccine development. And, and the further to the left, you see the more early in stages are the vaccines. So there are two vaccines, two or three, I think it's two vaccines now that are ready for human clinical trials, and we're looking forward to seeing the results of those trials coming up soon. So we don't know a lot, and what don't we know? We don't know if there's a safe time during your pregnancy to travel to an area with Zika. If a person travels and get bit, gets bitten, how likely are you to get Zika? Or that your baby will have birth defects from the infection? Trimester of pregnancy appears at earlier is more important, but we have seen babies who have been, we think, have been uh, exposed during later trimester and um, can be um, affected as well. And we don't know if previous infections provide immunity or whether previous infections will have an impact on future pregnancies. I won't go through the evaluation and outpatient management. I just wanted you to see that there is an algorithm, as was pointed out earlier, that the CDC will provide, and it's in your booklet. If you really, really need to do that, you should probably really talk to a specialist who can help you because it's really multidisciplinary, involving neurologists, ophthalmologists, et cetera, many other uh, people. We really need to make a, a very clear statement around family and psychosocial support, and there are a number of resources at the CDC website where you can look at information for families when you're communicating the disease. 
Um, there are pediatric evaluation and follow-up tools as well at the CDC website, which you can use um, for um, management. There are a number of studies, as you can imagine, that are being done now. The main questions are, what is the level of risk uh, during pregnancy? Uh, when during pregnancy is the risk um, at highest um, uh, peak? What is the full range of health effects on babies? Is there mild a neurologic disease or severe? And, and we, I'm sure there is, but what, how, does that, how do we de determine that? And what other infections? For example, in these areas that have Zika, they already had dengue virus, which is a related disease. And there's lab-based evidence that when you have antibody to dengue, it might actually make the Zika virus infection worse. But we only know that because of lab studies using cells. So if you grow cells and you put Zika virus in them and you add antibody to dengue, the cells get more infected and they get more disrupted. But we don't know if that's true in humans yet. So in some studies have suggested that that may not be true in humans. So that would just be a horrible thing for us to, and we would really need to be, you know, Know, ramp up our, our prevention efforts, not that we shouldn't do it anyway, but that would be important to know. And then, of course, all of the late onset problems that we might see as well. There are a number of pregnancy uh, uh, registries. Uh, there's the CDC uh, pregnancy registry, the Zika active pregnancy surveillance system in Puerto Rico. There's one in Colombia. There's a birth defects surveillance here. And then there's an Arbonet surveillance of children with Zika. So quite a number. And last week, one of my uh, faculty members who works on Zika in Grenada um, went to a World Health Organization meeting where they had every organization they could think of who had children that they were following because they really are trying to get this data together as quickly as possible. So um, I will pretty much uh, just say that what you can really do at this point is report cases if you suspect them uh, to the registry and also to really take advantage of all of the resources to get more educated about this in case you find children who might have evidence of microcephaly or if a pregnant woman has been at risk of traveling. So know the basics. Um, diagnose and test if you can, and if you don't have that capacity yourself, know who you can refer to. Understand the assessment and management should you come upon it. Many, many of these uh, academic centers will have that capability to help you out. And really what you can do at, on an individual level is provide support in your respective fields for these families and inform your state and local health department as well. So I will, these are my uh, references, and um, I will stop there, and thank you so much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.